Awesome. All right. My name is Kevin, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives in all genre of scripture and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week. Ways you can support our ministry is first follow our Instagram page, like our Facebook page, and you can listen to this broadcast and make comments underneath whatever social media channel you choose to use. You can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org, under the Give tab. So you are joining us live on Thursday night, obviously, because this is live. You listen to all of our bumps and stumbles through this program at 8.30, which is now 8.39, for this podcast, and this will be replayed as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast at 10 o'clock on Sunday. So every Thursday night, we're coming together for this broadcast to give a live and better understanding of the material that we're covering. So we call this a deeper dive. So if you have been following us online, you'll remember that we are in the book of Exodus tonight and today, and we're discussing Exodus 11, 1 through 13, 16. And I'm joined today with my experts, Sherea Bodner and Jake Flug, two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Sherea and Jake. Hey there. Hello. Hi. We made it. Here we we did make it. Maybe you can help me with my audio. It's my audio on my computer that's not coming through. I decided to play a Kendrick Lamar video right before, and it just blew up my computer. So obviously, I shouldn't have done that right before we went live, but I did. And so that was my mistake. My apologies. So let's go ahead and read Exodus 12. Jake, you want to pull that up and read that for us? Exodus 12. And we're going to start there just by reading scripture and grounding ourselves with that passage. Exodus 12. And we'll read this evening from the Common English Bible. 12.1 says, The Lord to the Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This month will be the first month. It'll be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole Israelite community on the 10th day of this month, they must make, take a lamb for each household, a lamb per house. If a household is too small for a lamb, it should share one with a neighbor nearby. You should divide the lamb in portion to the number of people who will be eating it. Your lamb should, all, should be flawless. It should be a flawless year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You should keep close watch over it until the 14th day of this month. At twilight on that day, the whole assembled Israelite community should slaughter their lambs. They should take some of the blood and smear it on the two doorposts and on the beam over the door of the house in which they're eating. That same night, they should eat the meat roasted over the fire. They should eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over fire with its hands and legs and internal organs. Don't let any of it remain until the morning and burn any of it left over in the morning. This is how you should eat it. You should be dressed with your sandals on your feet and your walking stick in your hand. You should eat the meal in a hurry. It's the Passover of the Lord. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night. 
and I'll strike down every oldest child in the land of Egypt, both humans and animals. I'll impose judgments on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be your sign on the houses where you live. Wherever I see blood, I pass over you. No plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day will be a day remembering for you. You will observe it as a festival to the Lord. You'll observe it in every generation as a regulation for all time. You will eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses because anyone who eats leavened bread anytime during those seven days will be cut off from Israel. The first day and the seventh day will be a holy occasion for you. No work at all should be done on those days except for preparing the food that everyone is going to eat. This is the only work you may do. You should observe the festival of unleavened bread because on this precise day, I brought you out of the land of Egypt in military formation. You should observe this day in every generation as a regulation for all time. In the first month, from the beginning of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day, you should eat unleavened bread. For seven days, no yeast should be found in your houses because whoever eats leavened bread will be cut off from the Israelite community, whether the person is an immigrant or a native of the land. You should not eat anything made with yeast in all of your settlements. You should eat only unleavened bread. Eat only unleavened bread. Then Moses called together all the Israelites' elders and said to them, go pick out one of your flock for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the bowl, and touch the beam above the door, the two doorposts with the blood in the bowl. None of you should go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord comes by to strike down the Egyptians and sees the blood on the beam above the door and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door. God won't let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you down. You should observe this as a ritual regulation, as a ritual as a regulation for all time and for your children. When you enter the land uh, that the Lord has promised to give you, be sure that you observe this ritual. And when your children ask you, what does ritual mean to you? You will say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for the Lord passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians he spared our houses. The people then bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites went out and did exactly what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron to do. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the first offspring in the land of Egypt from the oldest child of the Pharaoh sitting on his throne to the oldest child of the prisoner in jail and all the first offspring of the animals. When Pharaoh and all of his officials and all of the Egyptians got up that night, a terrible cry of agony rang out across Egypt because every house had someone in it who had died. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron that night and said, get up, get away from my people. Both you and your Israelites go. Worship the Lord as you said. You even can take your flocks and herds as you asked. Just go and bring a blessing on me as well. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the land because they thought we'll all be dead. So the people picked up their bread dough before the yeast was made it to rise and their bread pans wrapped in their robes on their shoulders. 
the Israelites did as Moses had told them and asked the Egyptians for their silver and gold jewelry, as well as their clothing. The Lord made sure that the Egyptians were kind to the people so that they gave them whatever they had asked for. And so they robbed the Egyptians. The Israelites traveled from Ramses to Succoth. They numbered about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. A diverse crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flock and herds. They baked unleavened cakes from the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. The dough didn't rise because they were driven out of Egypt and they couldn't wait. In fact, they didn't have time to prepare any food for themselves. The length of time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that precise day, all the Lord's people in military formation left the land of Egypt for the Lord that night. That, that was a night for the Lord. That was a night of intent watching to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For all Israelites in every generation, the same night is a time of intent watching to honor the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the regulation for the Passover. No foreigner may eat it. However, any slave who has been brought me, been brought, bought, sorry, may eat it after he's been circumcised. No temporary foreign resident or day laborer may eat it. It should be eaten in one house. You shouldn't take any meat outside of the house and you shouldn't break any of the bones. The whole Israelite community should observe it. If an immigrant who lives with you wants to observe the Passover, the Lord, then he and all of his males should be circumcised. Then he may join in observing it. He should be regarded as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat it. There will be one instruction for you, for the native and for the immigrant who lives with you. All the Israelites did just the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. On that precise day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt in military formation. Wow. Okay. Thank you. That was a long chapter, but that gives us a little context of where we are and how we should proceed. So really, we're going to talk mostly about chapter 12. That's what I wanted to talk mostly about tonight. So we're going to focus in on just the nuances of that scripture and then bookend it with some 11 and 13 as well. But before we get started on that, we just have a little bit of taster to what we're going to do in the overtime uh, after we finish Exodus tonight. We're going to go into overtime talking about deconstruction. Deconstruction right now is one of those hot terms that I don't think people really have an understanding um, and they really form their own opinions or their own definition of such word. And so uh, people get afraid of things that they don't understand. And as things change, I do have a mantra, a little snippet thing that I always say is that people do not like change that they are not a part of, but everyone likes change that they are a part of. And so if you're the one who's deconstructing, you love that change. <clears throat> but if you are listening to the one that's deconstructing, you do not like that change. And so that gets scary for some people, especially in the evangelical world, where we, in the evangelical world, we live in systems and structure. 
We live in systematic theology, thanks to some of our 1970s, 80s, and 90s systematic theologians out there that loved to write big tomes of literature. As you can see behind me, there are tomes of literature of systematic theology. And so uh, there uh, was a season post-1950s where the systematic theologians or systematic theology was very popular and everyone wrote a book. So in this time, in the everyone. 2022 era, we are now in the deconstruction era. And I would say that that is scary for some. So let's define some terms before we get into Exodus to give that context, because we're actually going to go through some methodology as we proceed in this passage of scripture. We're going to use some methodology that we're going to talk about in overtime. So let's start with the word deconstruction. Does anyone for me have a view, an opinion, a definition for deconstruction? And just to point out, we are watching social media feeds. So if you do have any questions, you totally can post in those feeds and we will do our best to address those questions as they come. Thank you for saying that. I'm so technologically challenged tonight that you guys have to fill in my blanks. I have notes, <laughs> I have research, I have all kinds of things. But uh, when it comes to technology fumbles- But no microphone. I don't have any headphones. <laughs> so I'm just listening to you on my computer. My goodness. Okay. Deconstruction. Let's talk about it. Give me a definition. Anyone take a shot at it, please. Good, Sheree, because I just read a very long time. Yep, that's Yeah, fair. there you go. Sheree, take um, it over, please. I would say deconstruction is, at least if we're talking about in faith, it's when we find that the structures that we grew up with or are used to stop working the way that they used to and we have to figure it out and that usually involves filtering through what still works and what doesn't and what needs replacing and what can stay um i think i think that reconstruction is integral to deconstruction do you think that the deconstruction excuse me the construction movement so Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, mm -hmm. you had some people like that started the evangelical movement. Yeah. Then you had um, uh, Falwell Sr. start the moral majority. Yeah. Right back in the like 1980s. That's when I was a kid. So I remember the moral majority. And then you have that perpetuated for quite some time. And now how that plays out now is... We have a very political system integrated with a, yes. a faith system. So you have yep. evangelical system construction kind of marrying up to political constructions. So back in the day, I'm sure that wasn't the intention, but when the moral majority sided with a certain political party and started like promoting that, that's when we lost, I guess, traction in remaining non-political in the evangelical system. Do you think that construction, constructionism, let's call that, versus post-constructionism 
Uh, do you think that that was done because of the lack of intelligence and biblical literacy? <laughs> um, to define some better terms, it'd be structuralism versus yeah. post, post-structuralism. What did I say? I said construction. Constructionism. Versus deconstructionism. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so uh, structuralism versus post-structuralism or constructionism versus deconstructionism. That's what I meant. Okay. So now that we have Kevin's brain sorted. So do you think that people like that had good hearts, that were evangelists, that loved Jesus, that wanted to preach the Bible to a bunch of people that were illiterate? Uh, biblically stupid, and they thought that, and so we need to put systems together so that people understand God better. Do you think that that was done that way? I think that's a very gracious way of saying it. Yeah, gracious. If we're, gracious. I mean, <laughs> if we assume best intent, yes, then yes, they were doing the best what they what they knew how to do. Yeah. I would, I would claim that they were more biblically illiterate than the other way around, but. Well, you had people like Jürgen Moltmann and German Karl Barth, Mm -hmm. people like that, that really promoted some very progressive thinking for the time about biblical concepts so you had this emergence in the 19 especially 1950s of this intellectualism starting to just press on either side of Mm -hmm. christianity and uh, a lot of theologians out there progressive theologians that were putting pressure on understanding biblical context and then you had the, uh, you know, like Marcus Borg, you know, emerged in the 70s and the 80s mm-hmm. and carried some of those thoughts forward. Um, you know, it would have been a reaction. It would have been my reaction, I think, that uh, we need to put some structure around this so people, you know, stay, within, stay within the boxes. Structuralism or, yeah. or constructionism is a response to humanism and the rejection of absolute truth. So then what's absolute truth? That's the next definition. Like what is an absolute versus a relative subjective truth? I mean, here we have Kierkegaard and C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis (laughs) loved absolutes, right? He was Mm -hmm. in the, we all have faces or what's the name of that book? Till we have faces. Till we have faces. Thank you. So till we have faces, absolute truth. But then you have Kierkegaard ringing in his back, you know, back of his head, subjective truth. So what's the difference? Mm-hmm. Kierkegaard believed in absolute truth, but he thought that all truth was based on the single absolute truth. And all of those truths were subject to the person of God, the character of God. But didn't Kierkegaard believe that absolute truth? Yes, but people didn't really have access to it. So we kind of hovered above it a little bit and we tried to interpret it up into our subjectivity. 
yeah, well, all of our truths are subject upon the axiom of God. Yeah, that's kind of existentialism. We don't have time to go there. But yeah. Sharia, what's an absolute, what's a subjective? I mean, an, an absolute truth is something that would be objectively true regardless of what you think about it. Um, okay. Whereas a subjective truth um, would be much more experiential. Um, it's something that we can disagree on that we can perceive differently. Um, and where these things get tricky is that as subjective beings with limited perceptions, how can we know which is which? Right. Right. And that brings us to today's market where we have this convolution of now politics and religion coming together. And this is my set of absolutes, which is subjective, right? But it's my set of absolutes. And then another group has my set of absolutes. And one is accusing the other of being feelings-based or emotionality. So you are basing your absolutes or your convictions on emotion. So people who have compassion or people who care about people, you know, that it's feelings-based, right? And so we attack that. Or those that feel like they have their version of care or their version of compassion or what's right in the human, you know, existence, that they have their absolutes, but they're also accused from another side of being feelings-based. Kind of, sort of? Sure. Yeah. And that's what Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard pulled all absolutes out of every camp and say, you don't have access to that. So how do you, you know? Right. Right. So I kind of, I kind of thinking we're in the boat that we're in, in the world because of our misunderstanding of what is absolute and what is subjective. I mean, honestly, if we really just believe that our truths in our head were more subjective than absolute and could then have human faults to them. I think we might be in a better place, but that takes humility. And that is not what we're gonna talk about tonight is humility. So <laughs> let's move on to my theory. I have a theory, okay? <laughs> this is my theory. That was just a taste of overtime at nine, 30. That's where we're going at 9.30. Deconstruction versus construction, post-structuralism versus structuralism, post-modern, absolute versus subjective, and nationalism. Oh, those truckers. Okay, let's move on. Let's go to my theory. I am proposing a theory, right, in the book of Exodus that I kind of believe that and I'm, I'm approaching this as I read Exodus, because I'm learning along with you, the book of Exodus. I've never preached through Exodus before, but then all of a sudden I'm like, I have this interest in Exodus and I'm like, wow, this is really, really cool things. And if it's a timeless truth, right? If it's a timeless idea, and let's just use the word narrative for now. Some people believe in historical mythicized history, let's call it. Some people believe in historical accuracy, let's call it. So mythicized history, historical accuracy. For the sake of the discussion, we're calling it a narrative. So in this narrative, okay, 
we have this idea of recreation and we've discussed this every week since the beginning. So the creation story in Genesis, if you've missed the last several weeks, go back and listen. But in Genesis one through three, you have the creation story and that has a certain framework. One, two, three, four, five, six days of creation, seventh day God rested. But between these days, we have chaos being brought to order, chaos being brought to order. So we have mm, the placement of light and darkness. We have the water and the land separating. We have uh, then plants emerge and then all of a sudden we have growth. So we have this blank land now coming to now a fruitful, fertile land. So chaos or or barren to fruitfulness, chaos to order. So that's the idea. And God called it beautiful. God called it good. Humans are called supremely good. And then we mess up. So we have this creation idea. And then we move into sin. That is the fall of humankind. So when we sin, we took the, we took the apple from the tree. We took the fruit of the what god told us not to touch god told us not to handle we would know then all good and evil we would know all right and wrong we would know all bad and good at that point we would be like god if we took that and rebelled against god so so exodus becomes a recreation story so just like noah is a recreation story we see the splitting of water where the earth cut Noah's story, the earth covers with water, the boat rises, and then the splitting of water. We have the dove, we have the olive branch. Now we have life again, redeemed, right? Recreation to redemption. In Exodus, now we're about ready to see the splitting of water. We have slavery, we have redemption from slavery, and then salvation through water to redemption on the other side. Now, we talked about last week, where does sin fall into this recreation story? Well, in Ezekiel 20, it says that they worshiped the gods of Egypt. They turned away from Yahweh, they turned away from God, and they started worshiping the gods of Egypt. So we see a sin element, but yet gingerly and carefully walking around that subject because we never want to accuse the oppressed uh, that it's their fault that they are oppressed. That's not what, that's not even in the paradigm or the, you want to talk about systematic theology. That's not in the system of God. So we did, that's not in God's nature is to blame the oppressed. The oppressor is always the victimizer and then you have the victim. Yet in Ezekiel 20, there is this sin component that an original group, an original group of people did something to make a whole bunch of people mad in God. And maybe they started the process. I, I don't know, but we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. But this is what we do know is that later on in the story, everyone just really thought that they were innocent. They had this universal innocence. Even the Egyptians thought that they were innocent. They thought that they were doing the right thing too. The Israelite people thought that they were doing the right thing. It should have been like, oh, or they didn't deserve what they were getting. And so we have this universal innocence. We have the redemption through water. 
we have salvation through the Red Sea, and then we end up on the other hand. Now, I proposed that Miriam's song is this beautiful, beautiful idea that is a song that they sing on the other side of the water, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. When they were, give me the context of Miriam's song. It's right after they cross through the sea. Yeah. Right after the sea rushes back over the Egyptians. Right. Okay. Exodus 15. Mm -hmm. There it is. And when I was reading this again this week, it said there's so many things that are, are nuanced in this. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. That just sounds like revelation to me. So you had this like song timbre of the Lord is everlasting good. The Lord is the redeemer. The Lord is to be worshiped for eternity. He took Satan, Egypt, Pharaoh, and put Pharaoh under water. And all Jews believed that water, the depth of water, all sin and demons lived in the depths of water. So that's when Jesus, when he walked on the water, he had power over the demons. He had power over evil by walking on top of the water. So water in significance, splitting the water, salvation through the water is evil is split. You split the water, evil, and you are able to walk through to the other side and not trap under the water. But Egypt then gets submerged in the water, and now evil is crushed. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. The Lord reigns forever and ever, Miriam's song. So when I do that theory, when I propose that theory, what I'm doing is I'm overlaying a philosophy over scripture. So in traditional exegesis, if I was a good preacher, right, I would take that scripture. I'm not saying I'm not a good preacher, but <laughs> I'm a terrible preacher. <laughs> so when you take that scripture, you take the scripture in regular exegesis and you take that scripture and you pull it apart, right? Mm -hmm. You look for themes, you do word studies, and sometimes it gets really, really crazy boring. And you work through the scripture and you look for themes and you look for ideas that the scripture speaks. But in a narrative, it's really easy to do that in the New Testament because the New Testament is in pericopes, which, you know, they're like blocks. So you look at this block of scripture and it pretty much is in a section by section and you can see different pericopes, especially in the gospels, because then that pericope matches this pericope in a different gospel that matches this pericope in another gospel. And you go, well, those are the same stories, but the story is this big. And so it's really easy to come up with a three-point exegetical sermon out of a scripture this big. <clears throat> but a narrative is so much different because you have to take the whole entire book of Exodus and take that into context. If not the entire first five books. Of the hey. Bible, yes. It's, right. one, it's one block narrative from the same editor. So now I'm doing reverse exegesis. Some people will say that I'm sinful for doing that. What do you guys think? I, I really don't think sin is that broad of a category. Well, some, 
some theologians think I'm sinful. <laughs> I think that um, what we see in the Jewish tradition is that creative readings of narrative are part of the tradition. Pretty standard, I would say. There's, yeah. <laughs> kind of the norm. There's precedence. Yeah, like the whole New Testament is like an interpretation of the Old Testament creatively. Yeah. So this is this is that is what they call it. So this I'm going to point to this, and it's that in the the also the New Testament. They're going to write it. They're going to point to that, mm -hmm. and this is that. It's the the other big word for it is called halakhic interpretation. It sounds so, like you're hucking a loogie. What did you just say? A little bit. Yes, that. And so when what is it called again? Halakhic interpretation. How do you spell that? H-A-L-A-K. But it's Hebrew, so it's like het. Yeah. Uh, and so you mentioned that in our pre-work, and I'm like, I halakhic interpretation. So the oh. second, so they pulled ideas out of yeah. scripture and made them fit and i i think people have a certain level of hubris when they think that they're doing exegesis the exact correct way and oh. that there is a certain system to do it There's but they're word again See, we even had back in the 80s and 90s, we even had systematic preaching if you didn't preach a certain mm -hmm. way. Verse then, by verse, expository preaching. No, you yes. said expository preaching. You have to say it with like a... We had that in the 2010s too. Did we? The 20s. Oh. We still have it. <laughs> the, the best sermon that's out there is... An expository, expository, expository sermon. I can just hear the person that taught me that ringing in my ears today because uh, it was so white knuckle gripped, basically, that we had to uh, pull apart scripture a certain way and interpret scripture a certain way and hold to that methodology. And that was a control thing. I believe it's back fear in the of losing 90s. It's our it's our fear of losing absolute truth. Okay, so mm -hmm. let's just let's just take that, thank you, and put that in the corner in our notes. The fear of the deconstruction of absolute truth. Right? So do you believe at this point, if I interpret Exodus a certain way, and it's different than Shreya, maybe your way. Because yeah. you're not sold on my theory yet. I know you're not. I'm not. You keep looking at me like, right? But I'm posing this as an exercise of deconstruction, right? So is, is that like you come at it in a certain tradition and you come at, I come at it as a certain tradition and Jay comes at it as a certain tradition, but the themes and the ideas and the big pictures and God is still God, Jesus is still the son of God. Salvation through Christ is still intact. But yet maybe we yep. look at it a little bit differently. Is that wrong? Is that, is that sinful? I think that's ideal. 
And it was done back in the day. That's yep. why we have this confusing passage of Exodus 11, 1 through 13, 16. And that's why I brought that all up because- That was a really great transition. Wasn't it? This is all <laughs> on purpose. You should see my notes. <laughs> These notes are like just transition, transition, transition. Because I think that it's important to talk about deconstruction. It's important to talk about just the example of how that can be like my theory of the, the like the the foundation of the universe all the way to the you know eternity the totality of of the universe as existing and uh, eternity and so if i hold to that theory but i'm not like telling you that god doesn't exist right. i mean is, is that harmful it's actually fruitful i think but Anyway, so let's look at Exodus 11, 1, 13 through 16, because honestly, when I read some things on this passage, uh, I was challenged. I was blown away. It actually supported my theory, which I'm going to get to here in a minute. <laughs> so let's talk about this confusing passage. We read chapter 12 the majority of it, I would say, but let's, uh, the whole thing. Let's look at this confusing. Yeah. The whole thing, the whole chapter 12. Let's look at this chart. And Jake, since you have this chart and oh, you're prepared. Sorry, wrong chart. Sorry, wrong chart. It should be that chart. Sure. take it over <clears throat> i want to listen to what you guys have to say on this we talked about earlier how the editor of exodus pulled from multiple traditions and i i feel like that might be the most beautiful thing of exodus is that one voice wasn't the only voice being heard where um, when in, in the New Testament books or even in some of the latter Old Testament books, you have this monocle lens of what happened. And so when things don't all line up, like Kevin was talking about earlier, they have stories that in the New Testament that don't quite line up in, new, in numbers or in time. And so it's hard to rectify those where this editor put every tradition together in one passage so that you have to sit there and try to decipher which tradition is which. And so this chart is from Pete Enns from the Exodus for Everybody uh, and goes through the different, the, the uh, regulations for Passover and also the regulations for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so you have tradition one and tradition two and if I can think clearly on this, straight and correctly or wrong, tradition one, we already talked earlier about the JDEP theory, which we can talk about probably later as well if we want to in our deconstruction time. But the first is the Yahwehist. Okay. And that has a very, like, it's very story driven. It's about the, the grandeur and the, and the conquering of God 
And tradition two is, is the P, it's the, uh, the priestly tradition. And so more focuses on regulations, on uh, communal response, um, and the accuracy of all, of all things. And so what the editor does is you can see the, the roundabout way that through by the arrows of the way that they, they put those together. And if you read in the original language, you can actually decipher these by the words that are being spoken or written down, sorry. So that is my best explanation of that chart. Trey, do you have any more input? Um, I do think hearing you read it aloud, um, it, it did feel disjointed. Like, wait a minute, we've just heard this. This was slightly different. What is actually going on here? Is there even a timeline? Um, so I do really appreciate the chart because it kind of brings some clarity to what's going on, what the sections are and how they fit together. Um, kind of a, an afterthought, I guess. Um, we've talked about how this was likely written during, or at least written down um, during the Babylonian exile. Um, one of the things I noticed when you were reading aloud is in chapter 12, verse 11, it says, you should eat the meal in a hurry. It is the Passover of the Lord. For someone who had been celebrating Passover their entire life, they would have been like, yep, that's what you do for Passover. It's probably unlikely this was written down as it was happening because at this point, the Israelites have no idea what a Passover of the Lord is. Um, so I, I think it's just one more sign that points to a later um, tradition. Kevin, anything you want to add? No, I'm just learning. I'm listening because it's fascinating to me. When I was younger, I when I was at, um, I went to Pepperdine for my graduate school and for my master's. And I was in a class and we were talking about the book of Isaiah. And yeah, I always came from the tradition that, you know, the, the Old Testament books, like the book of John was written by the apostle John or the book of Matthew was written by Matthew. Um, and the book of Isaiah was written by Isaiah and that was it. One person, one book, Moses wrote the first five and it was done. Like I was, I was cool with that. You know, I didn't need to know anything else. I really didn't want to know anything else to be honest. And then, uh, I entered into, and I really didn't know what I didn't know. And then I entered into this class and I started listening to this Old Testament prophets teacher. And all of a sudden he said that the book of Isaiah was written by at least three people. And I went, what? I've never heard that before. So I was just fascinated by that concept that Zechariah was written by like up to nine different people contributed to, you know, one small little book, you know, and I was just like, I can't believe that that could be true. You know, how could we, how can we um, know that information because it was written so long ago, even in exile. I mean, that's a long time ago. So how would we even know? And then all of a sudden we started discovering that the language, like the actual Hebrew could be different, different nuances of the Hebrew could be different, like, like almost different dialects of the Hebrew. 
And then like the era of time, like just like what you said, Sharia, that it couldn't have been written during the time because they wouldn't have known to eat how to eat the Passover meal. Um, but even more like or how what to a eat Passover it, is or what Passover is or how to eat Passover meal quickly. Like, what does that even mean? You know? So, so, you know, some people are like spiritual in the cloud people where they say, well, God's got all that figured out. You know, well, I, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine to say that about everything, but I kind of like to dig a little deeper and understand why it was the way it was and what was done why it was done that way. So I take that home and both Amanda and I discuss the book of Isaiah written by three people over dinner that night. She had never heard the same thing. Never heard that either. And so she, you know, she's stressed out about that. I was stressed out about that. We both were like, wow, what did we even learn the right things, you know, in Bible college? Did we even get the the right instruction the right truths you know in in the in the classes that we took before so it was really eye-opening huh would you call that a deconstruction oh we, i don't I, I call that a wrecking ball that's not a deconstruction <laughs> that's a freaking wrecking ball on my understanding right there so I, I just, I didn't know what to do with that information. She didn't know what to do with that information. We spent probably, a, probably years discussing and every, every turn since then, I've discovered new ideas, new truths, new understandings. And it's just, you know, my pathway of call it deep post-structuralism, deconstructionism, Kevin, Kevinism, you know, like call it whatever you want. Um, it's been really fruitful for me. Some people have to take a chokehold on the seven days, man. And they're literalists and seven days have to be seven days. And I'm like, well, why do they have to be seven days? Like, is that really important to the story? I mean, is the Israelite people actually in slavery in Egypt? Does that make the story better? Like, oh, this is so much more of a fruitful story that I knew that they were actually being whipped and beaten and raped and pillaged in Egypt. It makes it so much better. I, I don't understand why these things have to be the way that they, you know, has systematized out there. And if anyone else has some thoughts about why that has to be the way that it is, like the evangelical world has to put a system together and everything has to match that system, you go for it. Put it in the notes. You know, give me your opinion, push back, whatever you you're want talking, to do. You're talking, you're talking about the crowd right now. Yeah, anybody that listens okay. to this after today, put some notes in there and just, you know, let it rip. I want to hear you. So, so we now enter into this uh, Passover. Um, and now we're about ready to move into the... Exodus. We're about ready to move into the exit out of out of Egypt. So, but right before that, in chapter eleven, we have this plague, the tenth plague, and this is brings us kind of ties to the Passover meal or the Passover ceremony. And I really found some reading that I did um, interesting when it came to, and I cross checked this because I have not really this makes complete sense to me. 
but I have never preached it this way before or taught it this way before about what the Passover meal is really about. I've always taught that, you know, just what the scripture says that the angel of death passes over the blood of the lamb sees on the door and it passes over that blood of the lamb and doesn't affect the firstborn of the Israelites. And I've never asked why. Isn't that lame? 25 years of ministry. And I never asked why. Like, what is that? What is, why is that an important piece of the story that the Israelite children couldn't die as well? So let's talk about that. Passover ceremony. What is it really about? Do we know what it's about? We have some guesses. Yeah. Go for it, Shreya. You start us out. Well, I mean, using the outline that we're working off of. Yeah. It all comes down to wombs. All wombs belong wombs. to God. Wombs. W-O-M-B-S. The uterus. The uterus. Explain. How does everything point Uteri. to the uterus? <laughs> How is this um, possible that in the entire book of Exodus and all of history points to the uterus? Right. Well, the 10th plague is about the firstborn. Um, and then you've got the, um, the Passover lamb, which is also the firstborn lamb. Mm. Um, later on, we'll see the festival of first fruits. Um, Offering the first of the harvest to God. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we've got a couple examples, uh, a couple other examples. Um, the Isaac almost being sacrificed um, back in Genesis. Okay. So God, God lays claim on the firstborn. It's claim on the firstborn it is it, it echoes the God is birthing mm -hmm. a nation, birthing a people out of breaking the water and passing through the water into dry land. God is birthing this people out in labor pains. They hear the cry and agony of labor pain. And then if you get it down into Exodus 34, mm -hmm. you read the, the compassion of God, which if you take compassion out to what it really means, it's, it's the maternal wombness of God. The Rachum. Yes. Rahem. The Rachum. The Hem. The Hem, yeah. Hem. Rahem. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought there was a ch in there. Rachem. Uh -huh. Rachem. I thought it was chum. Chem. If you change the vowel, it changes it to a different, like from a verb to a noun kind of thing. Oh, okay. So same word. Ish. The Rachem. So we'll get on the same page. The Rachem. Yeah. The so womb of God. The womb of God. Yes. Which means compassion. Yes. Where do we see the compassion of God? I mean, rescuing the people out of slavery is a 
Yeah, but there's a scripture in the psalm. Is it uh, the Lord is gracious and yeah, wombful, merciful, slow to anger, all of that, yeah. compassionate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Exodus thirty four. Yeah. So, in this graphic description of birthing, out of the water, splitting of water comes the children of God, mm -hmm. the Israelite nation. The Rachem is the womb that the compassion or empathy of God actually comes from. But if all wombs belong to God and they're commanded that the first fruits, the first fruits belong to God, whether that be in cattle whether that be in grain, whether that be in fruit trees and picking of oranges, whether that be walnuts or babies, all first fruits of God of, of life belong to God. We know that from scripture. So it makes complete sense that all the firstborn of all humanity actually belong to God, according to scripture. And in this case, were to be killed, including the Israelite children. The Israelite children actually were to be killed because all first fruits belong to God. So putting blood, the lamb's blood over the door, shows God that there is a salvation, salvific idea behind the blood of the lamb or the first fruit lamb, the best, the consecrated lamb is put over the doorframe. And that lamb, that first fruit lamb is sacrificed versus the Israelite children are sacrificed. So we have this idea of first fruits and that belongs to God. So it's like, tithing so our first 10 percent belongs to god the firstborn belongs to god the first crop belongs to god the first sale belongs to to god that's why isaac is sacrificed we see isaac being brought to the mountain and he's the first born and so therefore he is to be he is to be sacrificed so this idea that just the Egyptian children were going to die is actually false. That all the children, the firstborn children, were supposed to die, including the Israelite children, because the first fruits belong to God, but they are saved through the blood of the Lamb. So how do you, let's talk about substitutionary atonement here for a minute. How do you then get away, if this is the substitute, why is substitutionary atonement not just an easy like relationship here? Just to warn you, we are at nine thirty-five. Oh, okay. Not that. All right, that's let's, really. That's let's just really let's big, just end on that idea. That is a big question atonement. to end on. Yeah, that was like heavy, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Wow. We actually have nine thirty-eight because I was late because of my sound. Yeah. So okay. So so. 
tertiary sharing atonement. Why yeah. is that not a viable atonement theory? Yeah. Especially if we have it here in Exodus. That is a great, great subject for next week's overtime. We're going to talk about <laughs> substitutionary atonement, a theory in overtime, because we have to get to that eventually because there is an atonement given atonement theory births out of the womb out of exodus that's where we start seeing atonement we're going to do that in overtime thanks you guys for the exodus explanation good night everybody good night